Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, our hearts lie uh, open and bare to you this morning. And um, sometimes I, I pray that we leave um, things of concern and, and anxiety at the door when we enter this. And, uh, and I have come to realize that that is a wrong way of approaching this. That, Father, we bring in our prayers all of those things to you. We bring them with you in here in order to give them over to you, in order to rest in you. We don't leave them in the door. We leave them for you. Father, we want not only to know you, but we want to experience your love in us, in the silence of our hearts, in those deep places where we hide things. Father, we crave your forgiveness. We crave your forgiveness for those times of weakness when feeble thoughts enter our heads, sometimes evil and cruel thoughts, words that we have spoken out of turn without thinking. Father, we want to rest in your forgiveness and rest in your love, and we want to serve you in joy. Father, our desire is for you and nothing but you. And Father, we know that everything will fall into place when we desire you and seek first the kingdom. So Father, we want to ask this morning also, not only just to, to feel and know your presence in us personally, but also the people that are on our hearts and on our minds, our, our friends, our co-workers, people we um, uh, rest with and play with and work with and and converse with. We pray for those people who are, are in sorrow, who are carrying burdens that uh, seem too heavy to carry, uh, people who are friends who have been put in positions of difficult decisions, uh, those that are lonely. And Father, those seem like a multitude that we know who are sick. And we all have friends and loved ones who are there. We have friends who are uh, deathly ill, and I know that every person in this room can relate to that. So, Father, we are asking your, your healing, not only your physical healing and your physical wholeness. We ask for physical flourishing, but we also ask for emotional and we ask for spiritual flourishing. That uh, you, you heal us in those dark places of our heart. You heal us in those holes that that can't seem to be filled by anything else but you. Father, make yourself real to us this morning. Make yourself real to us through your word, through the music, and just in silence. So Father, we want to sit in silence for just a few seconds and invite you into our lives to move us and change us, to heal us, to forgive us. Father, we confess these things to you in silence right now. Father, you declare us forgiven based on the blood of Jesus Christ. We accept that forgiveness and we look to you as moments that are new and fresh and full of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As uh, Kendra said, we are st uh, starting a new, new series this morning, a new mini-series actually. Uh, I'm titling it, uh, What Does Sunday Morning Have to Do with Monday Morning? And kind of uh, piggybacking on the idea of the, of the royal priesthood that we looked at the last couple of weeks as we finished up our, our summer series. Uh, Sue and I are, are going to take some vacation time in October, and I thought, well, we'd, you know, rather than start the exposition of a, of a major book like we did in the past, like Hebrews and Acts and some things, I thought maybe we ought to do sort of a, a compact sort of thing, and then uh, when we get back, we'll, we'll start something more larger, maybe, a uh, bigger vision, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but this is what I, I've, we're looking at this morning. What does Sunday morning have to do with Monday morning? And what I almost uh, titled it was Confessions of a Recovering Dia, Duelist. Um, and what I mean by that is that I was raised, and many of you are probably raised, with the idea that uh, we live in kind of a dualistic kind of world, that there is heaven and there is earth. There is heaven up there and there is, there is earth down here. And we look at heaven as this sort of the place with the pearly gates and the clouds and the floating and whatever, you know, and uh, that's the place where we are, are waiting to go. And then we find uh, the world something like this, uh, where we see the world as, as temporary, uh, maybe um, uh, evil even, uh, maybe, just, uh, maybe just not good, just material and not spiritual and somehow sort of a second tier. And uh, that's kind of how I was, I was brought up. Again, I, that's, that wasn't communicated exactly word for word, but that's the idea that was communicated. That's kind of what I got, that we were just on this earth to sort of live out our time until we wait to get evacuated up there, wherever up there is. And uh, we even talk about God as being the man upstairs. And so we had this dualistic idea about heaven and earth. And one was really bad, one was secular and material, and the other one was good and spiritual. And that's the, that's the concept that I think a lot, of us, a lot of us have. We even joked about it when I was kids, when we were teenagers, and about how all this was just going to burn up, and the real reality was heaven, and this was all fake reality here. This wasn't real real. That's the only thing that's real real. And we used to joke about it when we were teenagers. Somebody would get a new car, and we'd go, hey, or pick up. i say, yeah, that's a really nice pickup. Uh, yeah, it'll burn. It'll burn, you know. Or in my case, I, got a, I remember getting my uh, candy red apple um, um, SL175, Honda SL175, and my friends looked at, yeah, cool bike. It'll burn, it'll burn. <laughs> and the idea was that we're not supposed to get attached to this or any, you know, like, anything like this. But the thing is that um, when we look at it, at, the, at reality like that, it can have really damaging major effects on how we view everything else. It, it kind of just affects everything, especially our, our jobs. It's, it's in our subconscious. It affects what we think about, it, what we do, basically nine-tenths of our life. And we begin to think that uh, we get into these extremes that what we do in our jobs or our work, our daily lives, really aren't that important. And so we kind of float to these extremes. We go to the one extreme that says, oh, well, it's... Um, you know, what I'm doing, you know, Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday really doesn't amount to much. It doesn't really matter, you know, so why bother? And uh, just kind of, you kind of give up on it. Uh, you can go to that, that extreme. We start to compartmentalize. We've got our sacred life over here. This is what we do on Sunday morning. And then we got our secular life over here, and neither the two shall meet. And uh, they're two separate realms, two, two different compartments that we live in. Uh, or it can go to the other extreme where we go, okay, yeah, I've got these two compartments, secular and, and sacred, 
And in my secular life, you know, it's the, it's the make money. And it's, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the end all of all things, is to get as rich as I possibly can. And uh, so we maybe even do some things that, that uh, kind of greed may take over. Or we may even do some things that are, that are unethical or dishonest and maybe even illegal. Uh, but we got that in that little box over there, and that doesn't have anything to do with my sacred life over here. And so we get these, these compartments, and they're, they're, they're not connected. Well, when we think about the Bible and jobs in general, we usually go to Genesis chapter 3. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken and you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so we kind of have this sort of pessimistic view about work that it's just something that I you know, drudgery have to do, I have to go to, you know, and everyone has seen this, uh, this bumper sticker, I'm sure, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. And that's kind of the idea of how we view work. It's just part of the curse that I have to go to work and life would be much better if I didn't work and I could just do, do whatever I want. That it's just, just uh, whatever. You know, that, that's really what life is. And we have been, and we have been so immersed in, in capitalism that we think that making money is the only reason we go to work. And we think that, um, that uh, people would readily say, hey, if I could get free money uh, from the government or from where else, then I wouldn't have to work and I wouldn't work. I don't think that's true. Now, I'm not naive, I'm not stupid. I know there are people who think that way. I know there are people who say, hey, if I can get free money, then why am I going to work? But I also want to say that the poor do not have a monopoly on this. It cuts across all classes. There are wealthy people who sit back and say, I have got a trust fund, I don't have to work. And a lot of people, there are people who think that. I'm not naive, there are people who think that. But I think deep down there are reasons why we work that don't have anything to do with that. There are real reasons why we work. We even attach uh, dollar values to people. I, I googled this this week and saw this headline of the article that said Jeff Bezos is worth $12.5 billion. Well, guess what? He's not worth $12.5 billion. Jeff Bezos is priceless, just like you and me, because we're eternal. And we can't attach dollar figures to people's worth. But we are so immersed in our system that that just kind of comes naturally. But I will argue that we work for other reasons, that we work for different reasons, and even people work without getting paid. They actually do that. I have a friend who works at Freem, and during the pandemic started, they closed down like many, many businesses, and they laid a lot of people off, and she got unemployment. Well, her unemployment benefits were higher than her salary. Now, when Freem opened back up, what do you think she did? She could not wait to get back to work, even though she made less money working than she did not working. Now, I know that's odd, but she had to get back to work. She wanted to do that. Why is that? Why do they do that? Well, I think Genesis 1 and 2 have the answer for that. Genesis is the beginning. And Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the beginning of the beginning. And I think we need to look at that, what God is doing here in Genesis, 
to kind of understand where this work thing kind of comes from. And I think we, and, and I know these two chapters are very controversial. I know there's a lot of people who argue about it and debate about it and what goes on, exactly what happened and how, how little do you take it, et cetera, et cetera. That's, I'm not interested in that. Not this morning, anyway. I want to know what is the Bible saying here? What is the truth that the Bible is teaching here? What are, they, what, is the, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to say to us in these two chapters? What is the author trying to say to us? And he's trying to say, I believe, this purpose of creation, of what he's doing. I know it's a controversial story. There, there are two stories of creation, Genesis 1 Genesis 2, and you have to have both of them to have a complete picture. Okay, You have to have both of them. And what, what I think is going on here is this. There is a scholar in Wheaton, at Wheaton College named John Walton who has studied as intensively ancient documents. That's his specialty, ancient Near Eastern documents. And he makes a very convincing case in my mind that this is the story of God building a temple. He says the temple construction in the ancient Near East had six stages, and then the seventh stage, the God rests. And this God would also put an image in the middle of the temple that would declare to the world who he or she is. And every temple, he says, every temple that's been uncovered archaeologically in the Middle East has these images, except the Jerusalem temple. And they put an image in there, and then the, the, the God goes in to rest. Now, why doesn't the temple in Jerusalem have that same image? But what we see here is this same kind of pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he says, I'm going to make my image. But this image is not a sculpture. It's not an engraving. It's not a statue. It's two human beings. Male and female, he created them in his image. In their image, actually, he's plural. That that's the image of God. And so what Genesis is doing here is, is he's showing that God is creating this place where he can dwell. And his, the place where he is going to dwell is the universe. And he's creating a place where he can dwell with his people. And his desire is to dwell with them. That's, the, that's what he's getting at here. And so we have this exuberant, lavish description of God building a dwelling place for him. And he talks about the chaos of the water and how life comes out of the chaos of the water. And if you're an Israelite reading, reading this, you see also you understand that the birth of the nation, the birth of Israel, was, 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 comes through the Red Sea, birth through the water. And we see God creating this over and over again, this order, bringing order out of chaos. And it's not just a transcript. It's not like, like if you had a video camera, this is what you would see. The point is that God is starting a project here. He is starting something that's going to move forward. He's starting something that's going to, that's, that's going to accomplish his purpose, that it's a startup, and he plans on extending the creation under the wise stewardship of human beings. That's his plan, to continue the creation through this wise governance of human beings. And, and so we have this continuity of creation through the animals, the birds, the things, and, and he tells, 
the humans aren't the first creation that he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And so the humans are just this continuation of this creation, and yet it's different from the rest of creation. Because on this part, on humans, he gives them his image. He creates male, female in his image. Of course, then we have the story of these trees that are richly allegorical and, and richly puzzling at the same time. He gives them the tree of life, which is what they will need to be stewards of the creation. But he also has this other tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, wouldn't that be good to know good and evil? And the serpent comes along and says, don't you think it's a good thing that you would be like God? And they go, yeah, that's a good thing that we would be like God. Except they want to do it without God. They want to govern the creation without him. And so if you are Israel, if you're a your normal Israeli, a normal Jew in Babylon, in the captivity, perhaps reading this maybe for the first time, you would be able to make a real connection here. You would be to say, yes, God says, I gave you a garden, the promised land. I told you what you should and shouldn't do, especially when it comes to idolatry, and you didn't do it. And so you've been driven into exile. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve, driven into exile. So this thing starts with this lavish, exuberant description of creation and then goes tragically wrong because we could do it ourselves. And the first part of this beginning of the beginning in chapters 1 through 11, you have Cain and Abel, then you have Noah, you have the Nephilim, you have, and then it all ends up in Babylon or Babel in chapter 11 where they instinctively know that there needs to be this connection between heaven and earth, but they say, we can do it ourselves. And it goes tragically wrong. And so you would think God would say, forget this project. But then he does something really great. He calls out a childless nomad named Abraham. And then the story takes a turn. The story takes another way. And we can go on and on and talk about Cain and Abel. Maybe some other time we'll do this. But God surprises us with this call of Abraham. And the story takes another turn. So what does this have to do with work? <clears throat> we read the scriptures with assumptions. We, all, we call it common sense. But basically it's, it's stuff that we know from our background, Right? Um, I am in a, a bicultural marriage. My wife is from Iowa and I'm from Texas. <laughs> we have two culture clashes. I was the first one to marry a Yankee out of my family. <laughs> marry someone from north of the Mason-Dixon line. And I may have told you this story before. When we were first married, Sue knew I loved chili, and so I, I came home one day, and she had made chili, and she was very happy and very proud that she had made chili because I'm a Texan, and Texas loves chili. And so we're eating it, and it was really good, and, uh, and I made one of the biggest mistakes in my married life. I said, well, honey, this is, uh, this is really good, but let's don't call it chili. Let's call it hamburger soup. 
not one of my better moments as a husband. That was 35 years ago, and she has not made chili since. She said, if you want it, you make it. But I'm going on the assumption, the common sense, that you don't put beans in chili. Yeah, I know. For most people, that's weird, but you don't. Not in Texas, anyway. Those are two sacred dishes. You don't mix them. You know? That was my assumption. Common sense. Well, we read this and we think common sense. And when we say God rested, we think, oh, he disengaged. We think rest as inactivity. But when you look at those ancient documents, they say the gods also rested. That means they finished the construction of the temple and they took their place on their throne and began to rule. Now, that's a whole different story. That's how God rests. He takes his place. And Jesus says that in John, in chapter five, John chapter 5. He's telling the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, he says, my father is still working, and I'm still working. That's what he's doing. He is ruling. He has taken his place on the throne. And so this is important to know because God, Genesis 1 and 2, presents God as this thoughtful and creative creator. This person who is a thoughtful and creative worker. And we are stamped with his image. It has been engraved on our hearts, his image. And regardless of how, who you meet, on the street, in the store, wherever, if you scratch long enough, you will eventually come to God's image in that person. We have been created in his image image we have been stamped with that so why do we work well it's not because i owe i owe so off to work i go there's nothing wrong with paying your bills okay nothing wrong with that in fact it is the right thing to do to support your family pay the bills there's nothing wrong with buying things that says uh what are her name maria kondo says sparks joy nothing wrong with that okay but really why do we work? First of all, it's in our DNA. God designed us this way. We are designed by his image to work. We bear his image. We, it's in our DNA. I have, we, Sue and I have a nephew, Brian, who has four kids, four boys and a girl, right? Yeah. And they all look alike. And every baby that was born, they look exactly, every baby looks exactly alike. And he says, yeah, apparently we only know how to make one kind. Well, God created us in his image. He has given us the DNA to, to, to do this, to be wise stewards of his creation. Stewardship is not ownership. That means we are in charge of protecting it. We are in charge of supervising the creation and caring for the creation. We are called to reflect back to God the praise of the earth, and we are to, we are to reflect to the earth the image of God what he does and this gives us great great freedom great freedom to do what we're supposed to do if we have this idea that this is what we're supposed to do we in modern world we think freedom means means absence of all restrictions but we as christians we know that's not true we know that there are restrictions it's a matter of picking the right ones that are in, that are in line with the nat our nature and the nature of creation 
We know those restrictions are. And we will be free if we can do, operate within those restrictions. It's in our DNA. Uh, I always use the illustration of the fish. You know, if I were to take a fish out of the water and feel sorry for him, oh, that poor fish is stuck in that water, stuck in that lake. I'm going to take him out, I'm going to throw him out and go, you're free, fishy. He's going to die. And if birds don't, don't follow air, the laws of aerodynamics, they're going to crash. If planes don't follow the laws of aerodynamics, it's going to crash. But within those laws, they have freedom to fly and to soar. We do too. And this gives us great freedom to be stewards of the creation. It is our work. In our work, we show God's excellence, his creativity, and his glory. We show the creation what God looks like if we do it wisely, if we do it correctly. Uh, that's, there is um, this unwillingness to work is not a trivial thing. It is a violation of the way we were designed, of what we were designed to be and do. To not be, to, to be totally inactive. Proverbs warns us about this. He says that person is a fool. In other words, that person does not know God. That's what a fool is in Proverbs. So this is part of what we do. God could, remember, remember Wall-E, that movie Wall-E, where humans had robots do everything on earth and they had completely trashed it. And so they were up on some, some, uh, some satellite or something, some space station and waiting for the robots to clean it all up. And basically, they had everything given to them. They're floating around on these hover chairs, and they have everything given to them, and there's nothing but entertainment. And God could have put us in a garden like that, but he didn't. He put us in a garden to work it, to contribute, to cultivate, to create, to reflect back his glory. We are created to work to contribute to the common good. It's not just our own economic exchange or the pathway to the American dream, but this is a God-honoring activity of contribution to him and the creation. That we are not, that if we, if we separate our work from our theology or separate our work from our church, that not only devalues our work, it devalues us. It devalues our, the worker as well. We are not separate. We have to do this to contribute to the common good. Uh, he, he, it's, it means cooperating with what he's doing. It means an intimacy with our relationships with God and other relationships. It is a, a joyful privilege to be able to contribute to the common good. We contribute it. Uh, Genesis 2.15 says clearly, the Lord God took the man and made, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This was done before the fall. This was done before sin and death entered into the creation. This is what we were made for before, before the sin, before the death. This is a biblical worldview, and a biblical worldview of work begins here with this sovereign God who is the creator, and he calls us to create with him and to cultivate with him. Cultivate means to to sort of to, to preserve what is good about the creation and about human nature. And then there are people who are creators who think of things that nobody had ever thought of before. And we are called to do those things. We are called to work as an act of worship, of God-honoring worship. 
when God tells Adam to till the ground, he uses a really broad word there, uh, aved, which can mean all kinds of things. It means to till, cultivate, but it also means to serve. It means to weave, and it also means to worship. And so you find that word in everywhere. You find the word when the Jews were making uh, bricks in Egypt, they were using avad, okay? When uh, somebody was making linen, they were using the word avad. When the priests are worshiping, they're using avad. It's the whole thing. And so you put this all together and you go, everything we do is to be a God-honoring worship. We can't put them in compartments. Everything is sacred. Everything is sacramental, can be. It's when we twist it. Everything is sacred. They're not compartmentalized. And that is a hard thing for us to get around. We still think of heaven down here, earth up there, and there's not any connection at all. We can twist it. We can twist it and make sin out of it. But all is sacred. All is sacred. I've kind of tried to stop myself from using the words natural and supernatural. Because it's all supernatural. And it's all natural. You can't divide the two. We shouldn't divide the two. And finally, there is dignity in work. There is dignity in work. The ancient Greeks, they believed that work was beneath them. That the job was to get beyond work. That the people who were really high up and, and close to the, the real reality, the real real, as Plato said, is not this material fake reality. It's this, uh, this esoteric position up there. And the thinkers that sat around and think and talk, those were the ones who were closest to the heavens. But that's not Christianity. Did you know Christianity is the only religion that says that earth, that material and spiritual are to be united forever and ever? All other religions separate them. But we're the only ones who say, no, these things belong together. And that's the day we look forward to. That's the day we were waiting for. And the Psalms say this, that it is all, all noble and sacred. And we should experience awe in creation. We should experience God in creation. That it is, it is part of the dignity of work to experience awe and the creator God in this. The material. I remember my, my daughter, when she was in, in college, she was a, a genetics biochemistry major. And she was telling me one time, she says, Dad, I, I am more moved by God, I think, reading my genetics textbook than I am in most sermons. Oh, <laughs> you're killing me. <laughs> but I understand that. Paul tells us that. The first Bible is the creation. Paul says it. So it makes sense that the creation would reveal him. And working it gives dignity. And this has all kinds of implications. Uh, all kinds of implications. It gives us freedom to find the job that fits our passions and our, and our gifts. Well, at the same time, it gives us, when we see all work as sacred, it gives us opportunities to take jobs when the economy is weak because all things are sacred. 
that there's no room for condescension and no room for superiority. There's no room for feeling inferior or feelings of inferiority. We have to first identify with conviction and satisfaction that our work is participating with God, whatever it is, whether it's paid or unpaid. It is part of us. It's part of our DNA. It's part of uh, uh, work to show God's creativity. It's uh, to contribute to the common good. And it's worship, and there's dignity in there. And I'm going to... John Stevens isn't here this morning, so I'm going to embarrass him. Uh, I was in the library. Uh, we had to go by and pick up a book at the library yesterday, the other day. Yeah, it was Friday, I guess it was. And uh, John Stevens was out there with the master gardeners working on those gardens in front of the library. Now, I could just kind of guess by looking at the age of the people out there that they were all retirement age. But they still felt the need and the desire and the want to cultivate and to make something beautiful, whether you're retired or not, whether your job is fixing pancakes for the kids on Saturday morning or whatever. It's part of who we are. And so we have to rethink work. There's a Latin phrase, and I don't speak Latin by any means. I'm just saying there's a Latin phrase that's, that's very appealing. It's called quorum Deo, and that means we live in the face of God. We live before the face of God, and that's really how we have to rethink work. We live before the face of God. And only when we do that can we escape this hamster wheel of greed and jealousy and envy. That when we see this, that we are living before the face of God. And the church needs a good biblical view of work because that's where we spend nine-tenths of our lives. And if we are not speaking to that as Christians, no wonder, no wonder we are leaking people like crazy because we're not speaking to nine-tenths of their lives. We have to have a good biblical view of work. We live our life, quorum Deo, before the face of God. Dorothy Sayers probably wrote the best essay I've ever read on work, and she says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. I don't know, anybody could put it any clearer than that. Richard Mao, who was the president of Fuller Seminary, he said, he said people were asking him all the time, teach me how to integrate my faith into my work. I want to know how to integrate faith into work. And he says, they've got it upside down. They've got it all turned around. He said, asking someone to figure out how to integrate my faith into my work is like asking, how do I integrate marriage into my sex life? Now, he said that in a, to be provocative, and he is. But the point is this, that we get it all turned around. It's all part of us. It's part of our identity. It's part of who we are. Richard Bella, uh, let, me, let me read something else he wrote first before I get to that quote. Richard Bella, about 35, 36 years ago, he's a sociologist. He, well, he passed away about 10 years ago. But he wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And in it, he was talking about the... He was lamenting and almost speaking prophetically, when I look around today at what's going on today, 
I think he speaks prophetically. He writes, We are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person. But our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole concern for the common good. And I, I, I got thinking, I, I still remember my parents' uh, school board, uh, school uh, bond election was on the ballot uh, one year. And uh, I was talking to my dad. We were just talking about it, different stuff. And I, he said, he was telling me about it. And I said, are y'all voting for it? And he goes, oh, yeah, we're going to vote for the school bond. I said, how come? I mean, all your kids have left school. And he goes, yeah, but the Bradleys still have kids. The Berries still have kids. These kids are our kids. And it was just a default reaction to say, of course we'll vote for the school bond. These kids are our kids. It was something with the social fabric. He then makes this incredibly remarkable declaration. He says, to make a real difference, there would be, there would be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling, a return to a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means of one's own advancement. I don't know anything about his, his spiritual background, but I think that's prophetic. That work, a new idea of work, is what we need to recreate and re reestablish the social fabric that holds us together. The idea that our work is a calling. And if it's a calling, that means somebody outside has called us to do it. Whatever that may be, it is a calling. Someone else has called us to a mission of service, to do something beyond our own interests because if we work just simply for our own self-fulfillment, our own self-realization, it crushes us, actually. We think that's where we're going to find joy, but it actually crushes us. But when we see whatever we do, whatever we're called to do, whether it's painting, gardening, cutting the grass, whatever that is, as a service, we are called to do this in whatever situation we are in. So for starters... To rethink work, to rethink work and faith, we have to be clear about our identity, that we are followers of Christ in every area, in everything we do. This invites an awareness of his presence, not to check on us, not so God's, we work before his face so he can keep an eye on us. It's so that he cares about us and he cares about our well-being. He tells Jeremiah in one of his moments of despair, he says, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? And the answer to that question is, of course you do. Of course you do. Quorum Deo. We live and we work before the face of God. And that is a wonderful gift because he's there with us. He's there and he guides us in those difficult situations. He sent his son to know that how it, what it's like to feel vulnerable and lonely and hurt. 
And then he sends the Spirit to enable and equip us so that we can live, so we can live quorum Deo before the face of God with joy and confidence. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to do what you have called us to do. And we give ourselves to you for that. Father, we pray for your awareness of your presence day by day, minute by minute, in whatever you have called us to do. And we pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.